You're listening to Build Up One Another, the podcast where we unpack the stories behind our key relationships with one another and how these impact where we go and who we become. I'm your host, Karen Temple, and I am so delighted to introduce our guest, Vanessa Grant. Vanessa practices corporate law at Norton Rose Fulbright here in Toronto. Her practice focuses on mergers and acquisitions, corporate finance, corporate governance for public and private corporations, including private equity and venture capital. She also provides ongoing general corporate and commercial legal advice to several national and international clients in various industries with a particular focus on technology companies. But it doesn't stop there. Vanessa is a polylogue. She speaks five languages, has a degree from University of Toronto in political science, not to mention degrees in music and law. And to top it off, on a high note, Vanessa is also a mezzo-soprano opera singer. Vanessa, welcome to Build Up One Another. I'm so delighted to have you on our show. Karen, thank you so much. It's such an honor to be here. And as I hear you reading my bio, I realize the value of bios and how they should probably be better edited. But thank you. <laughs> the fun part came at the end. So thank you for that. Absolutely. And Vanessa, I love meeting people like you who have such a breadth of talent and interest. And so when I discovered that you're, op- you're an opera singer, I thought, well, let me just Google a little bit more. And on LinkedIn, I don't know if you're aware, but your wiki profile, your Wikipedia page also says... That Vanessa Grant is a Canadian writer of romance novels. Wrong, (laughs) wrong, Vanessa Grant. But it's an interesting conversation around that. Um, I did have uh, a URL, vanessagrant.ca, and I also had the various extensions.com.everything. And a woman called me up and she said, hi, my name is Vanessa Grant and I wanna buy your URLs. And I was so snobby about it. I was like, forget it, not gonna sell it. Eventually I let them lapse, so she got them for free anyway. But but we had this very awkward conversation around our ownership rights to the name Vanessa Grant. Did she know she was talking with a lawyer? Well, she she must have, it was fascinating though. So, So we had this very sort of awkward conversation. I said, oh, well, is Grant your maiden name? And she said, oh yes. I said, well, it's mine too. So we both had a birthright to it. Our families were also from Northern Ontario. It turns out though that her family was the wealthy side and mine was the poor side. So there you have it. Um, But she's actually hugely successful. And I did a show once uh, where the makeup artist came and said, oh my God, you're a romance novelist. And she had literally bought a number of this woman's books. So I wish I were the romance novelist, but regrettably I am not. And this woman is hugely successful. I have since gotten over my agony and angst about her name. (laughs) And I wish her all the best. It's phenomenal. There's also another Vanessa Grant uh, uh, who clearly founded a number of schools in Africa. Yes. So it's it's a fascinating name to Google, and I had not appreciated that there is more than one in the world. Uh, well, but there you are. I'm delighted to have this Vanessa Grant with us today, and um, and so let's jump right into it. You know, Vanessa, I was thinking the other day that when we are out in the world and we're social in social gatherings or we're networking, that people often start the conversation with, "What do you do?" And I often think, well, that's a pretty loaded question. And just recently, one of your connections on LinkedIn, Jeff Davis, posted a really great article where he was encouraging us not to confuse our identities with our jobs. And so I thought it would be really great to start our conversation there 
by letting you take us behind your professional identity and tell us a little bit about how you see who you are. Oh, that's a really interesting question. Thanks for asking. Do you know, I don't ask what people do. I'm actually, I, I eventually I'll find that out. And quite mm. frankly, it's probably pretty easy to find out. I'm more interested in how they think of themselves. So my question to them is one of two, uh, depending on what their family situation is. But I always ask, what's your secret superpower? Because mm. I want to hear how you feel about the world, how you perceive the world. And there's always two answers to that question. Uh, and you can characterize them this way. The first answer to that question sometimes speaks to people's relationships. So sometimes they say, gosh, I've never been asked that. I think I like to think that I'm compassionate. The other way of answering that question, though, is very uh, task-based. I play ultimate Frisbee. And it fascinates me because it tells me something a lot about the person when you ask that question, whether they're, they're emotion values based or whether they're action based. Mm. And then you can get into very interesting conversations quite rapidly after that, depending on the reaction to that. So I, I can answer that in two ways now that I know how people answer it. One of, one of my secret superpowers is that I do sing opera. My other secret superpower, though, is that I love being a mom. Mm. And that has been something that was interesting for me because my mother, who herself was an actor and a career woman, kept saying, oh, Vanessa, you shouldn't have children. You shouldn't have children. And I said, why? She goes, because I want you to have this wonderful career. And then I met this fabulous man who wanted children. I was like, okay, I'm not sure where we're going to go with this. We ended up having this wonderful child, uh, the love and the light of my life. And I realized, gosh, you know, I love being involved and engaged in someone else's life who has a very different perspective from me and yet is still a part of the fabric of my identity and part of the fabric of my family. So learning to love that wonderful person and learning to love them through some very difficult times. He's mm -hmm. a teenager now, so let's not go down that road. <laughs> has really been uh, the thing that I value most of all is learning more how to love. So there's the action-based answer. Mm -hmm. uh, I'm an opera singer. I love doing that too. And then there's the uh, emotion-based answer, learning how to love better and more deeply because of my son. Right. And, and beautiful. I'm so glad you touched on both because we, are, we play so many different roles in our life. And um, in today's world with all the busyness, we tend to be focusing on our work and our so-called economic value as mm -hmm. opposed to our value back to humanity as a whole. Um, when you speak about your son and being a mother and watching him have his journey as he grows up and, and the character and the person that he is, right? Um, I find it so interesting children when they're between the ages of around, well, from the time they start really engaging with us to say four or five, where their true nature starts appearing. Some of them are funny, some of them are serious, but it's as though the world hasn't started to get their grimy hands on, on those little beings and start to mold them to what society thinks they should be. And I often reflect back and say, it'd be really fabulous for parents to just jot down who they see their child is during those years. I always thought that that would be quite insightful. It's interesting. My mother actually did that for me initially. She didn't, uh, she sort of dropped it because I think everyone drops it in favor of just living the life. Right. Um, but it's, but it is an interesting conversation. Uh, one of my friends, when I had my son, 
he's a lawyer. Um, and I'll come back to Jeff Davis in a minute because he's actually a very dear friend of mine. Mm -hmm. He and I were at the same law firm together and started. So some of his stories I was part of. But a friend of mine came over when I first had my child. I was lying on the couch in shock uh, at the fact that, wow, you like I will be up for the rest of my life. I will never, ever sleep again. And my friend said, Vanessa, take a good look because the child that you have there is the child that he will grow to become. And those are actually fairly true words. I found that very interesting. My son had definite personality traits right from the start. Mm -hmm. And you can certainly uh, have a big discussion around nature versus nurture, which is not the point of this. But to some extent, my friend's words were quite wise. And I do want to come back to Jeff Davis. Um, Jeff is a dear friend, and I love the way that he has made it easier for people to be vulnerable. And it's interesting to me that it took a man to do that because, um, you know, one thinks about vulnerability as a female trait. We'll come back to that in a moment. But but it, but I, re I really admire him because he has opened the door to let everybody be vulnerable and to let everybody be themselves, whoever they are. Now, does that mean that, you know, I'm going to tell you every single thing? No. Uh, we also value reserve um, in this particular context. But I do admire the way he has opened the door for people to say, you know what? we do struggle. And here are some of the things we struggle with professionally. Absolutely. Absolutely. And um, a well-known author on this is Brene Brown, who mm -hmm. often will, has said that there's, there's two sides to every coin. And the other side to the vulnerability coin is courage. For sure. For sure. And yeah. I love that. And I love the fact that, you know, Jeff is having people talk, particularly in my narrow profession of lawyer, because lawyers typically don't talk about vulnerability. Mm -hmm. It's the one, it's one of the many, many professions, and I use the word profession quite specifically here, where I'm paid to be perfect. I'm not paid to make a mistake at all. Yeah. And so that creates a whole other level of tension. And the only people who sort of understand what you're going through are other lawyers. Mm -hmm. And so lawyers as a profession specifically, although there are other professions as well, have higher instances of depression for those reasons, because um, in our roles, we are paid not to make mistakes. And yet we are still human. Absolutely. Reminds me of the medical profession as well. Exactly. And also other professions coming out of the universities, for example, in the STEM, yeah. where it's not so much the mistakes, but there is such a large amount of pressure, peer pressure to be, to be the best, to be the top. Mm -hmm. And it creates an environment where... Um, people aren't vulnerable, people are publishing their perfect results mm -hmm. and presenting that public image as though everybody is the be all and the end all. Right. And it creates an enormous amount of challenge. When I think about, so maybe we can, we can jump in there. When you were um, finishing law degree, your law degree and moving into the corporate environment, with the university system where it's fairly structured, right? So you're competing against your fellow students and you're trying to get good grades and then you get offers to join certain law firms. And then when you join the law firm, it, in any workplace I would imagine, right? Because the workplace all of a sudden now you're potentially competing against other, other companies or other firms. There's also internal competition. Can you walk us through what that journey was like in, in being able to 
um, find your own place within your profession? That's an interesting question. Um, people think of law school as cutthroat. In fact, it was probably one of the most supportive environments I've ever been in, mm. uh, which is interesting in and of itself. There is no question that there, there's always the odd person out. Uh, who doesn't fit that sort of supportive model. But in fact, it was actually fairly supportive. Ultimately, the challenge was between me and the exam paper. It wasn't with respect to right. anybody else. My challenge was there, and we, we all helped each other because what I put on the exam paper, I couldn't control what other people put on theirs. It was just between me and the exam. Um, and, and so what I found interesting about law school was I had gone with the expectation of cutthroat and, you know, every person for themselves and good luck and sharp elbows and the whole thing. In fact, it was quite the opposite. It was an incredibly supportive environment. As I say, there's always some outliers, so we'll leave them there. And then when I went to, uh, I actually clerked, which is a slightly different journey, but um, you still end up at a law firm at the end of the day. Uh, so I clerked for my articles, but I ended up in a law firm. E even in a law firm, the environment is very supportive. Because again, remember, we're a we're a group of people who are all doing the same thing and nobody really understands the pressures unless it's another lawyer. So my God, if I can't support my colleagues, then I'm really in trouble. Um, so you need people to talk to, you need people to support you. So oddly enough, lawyers are some of the most compassionate people that I know mm -hmm. and people who actually care. And it's very interesting. Tiziana Kasharo, who's a, a prof at the Rotman School, writes a lot about organizational behavior. And some of her work was actually used by Amy Cuddy, um, who is the Harvard professor who had the book on um, power posing. Uh, but if you look at the footnotes of her book, she relies a lot on Tiziana's work. Um, and what's interesting about what Tiziana says is, she says, look, most people want to work with nice people. Yeah. I don't actually want to work with the mean person because I have to go through two layers of conversation. I have to go through the layer of conversation around just what we need to do the task. And then I have to go through the second layer, which is the emotional journey about working, about, about going through whatever emotional journey and addressing your emotional journey. And really, all I want to do is work with a nice person where I only have to do the work. And that's just a general organizational behavior point. So I don't think in any organization, people are ultimately going to survive if they're the elbows out type. Mm -hmm. I may not see karma get you, as I tell my son. Karma is one of those things where I may not be around to witness karma back at you. But ultimately, I do think as social beings and social animals, we do have to get along. And Tiziana's work supports that. People will always choose to work with the level person who may not be as competent, but they'll always choose that over the technically super competent person who is not very nice. Yeah, it makes me remember um, something that Ray Dalio said about when you're hiring, do you wanna hire for um, expertise or ability to learn? Do you want to hire for ethical or maybe not so ethical? Right. Take ethical any day and people can learn. 100%, 100%. And that's very similar to Tiziana's work. So it, she's, she has a, a similar matrix. There are a couple of exceptions to that matrix, which I also find interesting, which is, you know, sometimes when it's got the farm stuff, I do want the technical person and I really don't care about your emotional journey. Heart surgeons, same thing. Yeah, right, exactly. So there are exceptions. So if it's Beth the Farm, I'm definitely moving on to the expertise side and your personality matters less. But most of the time for every interaction, you're right. And it's funny, we were talking yesterday, I was out with a friend of mine for dinner and, you know, we were talking about sort of what makes a good lawyer. And ultimately, 
and I think this applies to any profession, obviously my lens as lawyer, is I want somebody who's curious. And back to your uh, ability to learn part of that matrix. You want to work with curious people who are interested and engaged. And I think that's common across all professions, but in particular with my lens, it's very, um, it's crucial in a law firm because again, as Jeff Davis points out in his LinkedIn article, we need to be perfectionists and that's hard because no one will attain perfection. Mm-hmm. And the curiosity um, trait is, is a beautiful one because with curious people, I find that they're always exploring what's their perspective, what's another person's perspective. What facts do we know? What do we not know? And so it, it, there's a discovery process in there. There's an uncovering and a willingness to discover things that we didn't know perhaps mm-hmm to discover that our thoughts and our opinions were perhaps not well-founded, that there's another way to look at something. And it brings a transparency to that conversation. I think it also opens us to have real human conversations. For sure, for sure. So back to your original question, my journey in law. My journey in law has actually been an incredibly good one. That's beautiful. And I am blessed with um, not only my colleagues with whom I work, but the people I work most with are my clients. And so I have a supportive base from which I can go out and create real relationships with my clients. And I think my clients are phenomenal people. And it is an honor and a privilege to support their journeys. Mm-hmm. And after, after doing this for a little over 20 years, I've got the luxury a little bit of saying, you know what, I want to work with people who are engaged and curious and who like to work with me. And so I'm very blessed in that all of my clients are doing interesting, exciting, engaging things, and we have the kind of relationship of trust, and I'll come back to that in a minute, that enables us to have a really strong, good conversations. And so I, I work in this wonderful supportive ecosystem. Are there, are there outliers in there? For sure. Yeah. But in the main, my journey in law has been a progression from being scared about making mistakes uh, to accepting that mistakes happen and what we do about that. And more, most importantly, not mistakes so much as how do we develop meaningful relationships of trust? Mm-hmm. And that's where I'm at now. Law and most other professions are trust. And Malcolm Gladwell in his, good, in his new book um, talks about the fact that human beings are actually engines of trust. Society doesn't work unless we trust each that's other. Right. And there are those people at the edges I'm not going to speak about that. But in the main, we all have to trust each other. And so what I do is a high degree of trust. That's ultimately what I do is I enter into trust relationships. And I'm so blessed that I have those relationships. So take us back to when you first started working and there was that anxiety of being perfect. Mm -hmm. Talk about how you began to realize that there is the supportive network and how you were able to build relationships with people internally and just sort of deconstruct that for us and how that unfolded for you as a young lawyer to where you are today. That's so interesting. Um, It speaks to fine people and to people who who served as examples, not as mentors. 
and, and there's a specific story. I thought I'd made some terrible mistake. And remember, your initial reaction as a young lawyer or as a young business person or whatever, st someone starting out in the career is, oh my God, nobody can know that I made this mistake. So the first reaction is to hide it. And this was something I couldn't hide. It was going to be obvious shortly, and I just needed to deal with it. So the first big learning experience for me was, you know what? The faster you say it, the easier it is to fix. Right. So I ran down the hall when I found out this issue. I literally had never seen someone's heart jumping out of their chest, except that you could see mine. I thought that was just a narrative trick in fiction. No, I was in it terrible panic. Now remember, I'm also a young lawyer, so I don't know whether this is like the biggest mistake in the world and I'm about to like tank the entire law firm, which is what I think, or whether this is like eh, a little mistake. I have no sense because I don't have experience. And I'm going to come back to the value of experience in a minute. So I'm running down the hall. I'm literally watching my heart come out of my chest. And part of me is thinking, wow, I thought that was, you know, a literary trope. I didn't actually think it was true. It's true. I walk into this uh, older partner's office. I say, here's what happened. And he said, oh, Vanessa, I'll just pick up the phone. He picked up the phone and he fixed it. Now, there are three lessons there. Lesson one for me was tell it as quickly as you can because it can get fixed quickly. Had I waited, it probably wouldn't have been that easy. Mm -hmm. Might have been, I don't know. The second thing it taught me is, wow, when you open yourself up to being vulnerable and admitting you've made what you think is the world's worst mistake, turns out it wasn't, but I didn't know. That was your... No judgment. That was where, that was my lens. That was my perception. This man looks at me and goes, you know what? It's okay. He had seen it before. Now he could have had a very different reaction. He could have said, Vanessa, I can't believe you made such a terrible mistake, but mm -hmm. he didn't. His first reaction was, he told me it was okay. And he told me how it could be fixed. And that was all I ever got. So the lesson I learned from him is when other people make mistakes, that's the way to react. He was a wonderful role model. You acknowledge what the person is going through. You tell them how it can be fixed. And then you talk to them about, you know, sometime later right. about would you do something differently? Right. And, and that was a huge lesson for me in compassion. And then the third thing I learned from that was I don't have any judgment right now. <laughs> I have lost all judgment. And the only way you get judgment is with experience. So I liken it to forest and trees. I've been doing this for 20 years. I'm looking at a forest. I can tell you it's a forest. And I can tell you five trees matter in this forest. And the rest of the trees, they, they matter, but maybe not so much. So we can let some of those trees go. When you are starting out in your career, oh my God, it's a tree. I don't know whether this tree is an important tree. I don't know whether this tree is an important tree. My God, maybe this is the most important tree. I didn't have experience to determine which tree mattered and which didn't. Right. So from my perspective, oh my God, this was the world's biggest and worst tree. From his perspective, he'd been doing it for 35 years. He's like, Vanessa, it's like this tree, this tree doesn't really matter. It's okay, I can fix this tree. Here's how you fix the tree. Mm -hmm. I thought, oh, so humbling experience because never confuse being intelligent with being experienced. Mm -hmm. And so three things that I learned. One, most things, if, if there is an issue, let it out early because it's just going to make your life easier. 
I, otherwise I would have been up for nights and worrying and then it would have gotten worse because it, it, it might grows. not have been, right. It might not have been fixable. Mm. I don't know. Secondly, the value of good people who role model. He was a wonderful role model and he taught me how to react when others come to me with that. Mm -hmm. It was the best experience of my life. And then the last thing is there is sometimes no substitute for experience. Right. And that only happens with time and with making mistakes. Right. And as I reflect back on what you were just saying, in terms of going quickly and putting it on the table and saying, having that, the courage to be vulnerable, Yep. to say, hey, I may have really done yeah. a doozy here, that also helps the trust between yeah. you. Right. Sure. Because when we cover and we try to hide, it's going to sh come out anyways. Yes, eventually. And then everybody is upset that you weren't forthright and saying exactly. so that the experienced people could come in. Right. In it's a to. reputational thing too. Absolutely. Right. So but, but he was one of the finest men. I, I've really actually had a number of fine role models in law. And all of them have taught me compassion and to say, to a, and to say it's okay to be vulnerable and it's okay to be who you are because that's going to make you a better lawyer in my case. It's going to make you a better professional and it's going to make you a better person. And it means that in my relationships, and they, they taught me what that looks like. And so in my relationships with those now who report to me, I'm, I try to emulate them because they gave me a very strong feeling that it was okay to be who I was. It was okay to do the work that I did and that they would help me. It's it was beautiful. phenomenal. They're phenomenal people. I, I was blessed. When I look at media, for example, and uh, for examples of a law firm, um, the TV show Suits comes to mind. I don't know if you've seen that I've one. I've actually never seen it. It's probably, probably good. It's one of those when I see a scientific or um, like a forensics show. The right. science is all bosh. And so oh, yeah. I, my suspension of disbelief goes oh, out the window right I'm away. I'm totally with you. But it crossed my mind hearing your, your story about just how supportive and strong and beautiful the relationships you've experienced yeah. in your professional career versus what we see on TV. Yeah. So for example, in Suits, it's about this fellow named Mike Ross, who is a college dropout, but he somehow uh, makes his interview. He gets into this interview and this this um, partner in the firm, Harvey Specter, hires him on, and he's actually not a lawyer, right? And so it's, and it all unfolds from there. And another character in um, in the show is uh, a fellow named Lewis Litt, and he's usually in charge of the associates. And the way they portray it is that there is these associate bins or or areas in in the firm, and it sounds very cutthroat the way they it all unfolds. And I often wonder how that. In affects our social perceptions of what different professions are like and and the experiences of working in those types of organizations. Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, I don't, I confess to not watching a lot of TV other than what my son makes me look at it on YouTube from time to time. Right. Uh, that's a different conversation for sure. Um, but that having been said, you know, drama is based on conflict. And people are interested in watching conflict. So more power to you. And, you know, people's perception of law is really limited to litigation in the main, because litigation is actually the one time lawyers can be public about what they do. Mm -hmm. 
We are bound by uh, rules of professional conduct that say, I can't even tell you who my clients are unless my client tells me it's okay to do that. So I have a confidentiality obligation and what's called a privilege obligation that's higher than any confidentiality agreement we'll ever be able to draft. That's actually most lawyers. Most lawyers are like me. We're solicitors. We're quiet. We do our thing in the background. We are not out there in court. When you're in court, and that is the public imagination, every everything's open, everything's open for a conversation, and you've got two people whose relationship has broken down. Mm. That's what's going on in a litigation context. And it doesn't even get to court because everyone tries to settle before it gets there. Nobody likes to be in litigation. So by the time it's in an open courtroom, it's two people whose relationship is profoundly broken down. They can't even get to a settlement. And so of course that's in the public imagination. That's the only time lawyers can be public about what they do. But litigation is only the tip of the iceberg. The real iceberg is lots of people on my side of the fence, on the corporate side of the fence, who want to create relationships. And it was very interesting to me. I come from an acting background. I'd done some stand-up comedy. I'm an opera singer. You put me on a stage. I'm the happiest person in the world. So I thought I'm going to be a litigator. So I go to my summer job and I want to do all this litigation. And of course, most of it was writing memos because if you're going to litigation, you actually have to know the area of the law intimately, and it's quite fact-specific, and you want to be very clear. I thought, oh my gosh, I can't write memos for the rest of my life. And then, so that was my first summer, and I thought, okay, well, litigation's great, um, but there are all these corporate lawyers who seem to be forming the majority of the firm that I was at, so let me see what they do. I really don't have a clue. Did you go and talk to people? Uh, I did, but more importantly, I, and, and so they said, yeah, sure, next summer, when you come for your next summer, do more corporate. And I'm like, fantastic. Well, isn't that fantastic? I fell in love with it because litigation is where the relationship has broken down. And that's interesting. But corporate is where we're trying to create the relationship. Mm. And I thought, haha, that suits me better. I want to help create relationships. If the relationship breaks down later, that's fine. But hopefully, I have drafted an agreement or I have done a deal that helps people come together so that they never need to look at that piece of paper again and that I have helped contribute to clarifying the rules around the relationship and that they know what they are and then they can go off and have that relationship. So you like building the foundation. I want to build, I want to help you build your relationship. And so that's very different from what you'll see in the public imagination because conflict sells. Of course it does. Mm -hmm. Everyone's interested in all the bad news. And that's fine. That's the way we are as human beings. It's entertaining. It's entertaining. It's dramatic. <laughs> right. And that's great. And that is what you can see in the public imagination. And face it, on Take Our Children to Work Day, my niece came in one day and I said, really? You really want to come in and see what I do? She left and goes, Vanessa, I'm never going to be a lawyer. I'm like, why? She goes, it's so boring. All you do is talk on the phone and write things down. I said, <laughs> you know what? That's what we do. We're creating, we're helping clients create relationships on the corporate side. And that is so very different from the entertaining conflict mm -hmm. that goes on either in the public imagination or frankly in the courtroom as well. And that's what we're seeing today so much of on yeah. in all our media streams that it it's all about um, drama, theater, and entertainment. For sure. Things that used to be so boring like the six o'clock news, yeah. right? Whether you're watching it on YouTube or some other medium, it's been turned into an entertainment show, um, you know, all well, driven, driven by the eyeballs and the revenue that's coming in. 100%. But what we do is we create relationships of trust. And ultimately, when we have 
that predominance of the drama in our society and we look back to how how the world really is operating in terms of building these trusted relationships it's these conversations that i love to have because it isn't so for folks listening it's not all about the suits <laughs> on on tv or in real life ultimately it's really about joining each other on a journey of where where you're both going and how you can both join forces to get where you're both looking to go from point 100%. a to point b so when you're advising your clients who are out there in the business world they're trying to do transactions they're trying to acquire companies and you're working with them to build the relationship of trust between yourself and them as a client and together now you're coming in as as a team so that they're able to do a transaction, say, or do an acquisition. Meanwhile, there's human relationships and human emotions on that side of the, the deal as well. How do you help your clients, helping them to build good, strong, trusted relationships during a difficult transaction with the other party? Oh, that's super interesting. I love the Harvard negotiation model. So years and years and years ago, uh, my law firm sent me to you know the two-day course or three-day course on the Harvard negotiation model, getting to yes, right? which I quite love. A couple of times we got to play games. So the games are obviously rigged. Uh, they wanted to definitely demonstrate that if I modeled one behavior, that I would get a certain behavior back. And it was fascinating. So one of the games was we were in two separate rooms. We were negotiating um, by sending notes back and forth, I think. Uh, I'm sure someone will know uh, what exactly we did. Uh, but that's not the point of this. And so we were given, we were supposed to, we were trading items and the game was rigged so that I could certainly take a short term advantage. And I decided, you know what? I wouldn't have normally done that. I would have done the kind of, you know, cooperating. If we cooperate, I might get less. Mm -hmm. I would definitely get less. I would, I would initially in the short term get less for cooperating. And I thought, what the heck, it's a game. I'll see actually what happens when I model jerk behavior and take the short-term success. So I took the short-term success. Immediately what came back from the other room on the next round of negotiations was that person wasn't trusting me anymore, wasn't going to cooperate, and was, you know, taking their toys and going home. It was interesting. So at the very end of the game, you know, it was revealed how much people had won or lost. I forget what we were negotiating for. And of course, my having taken that leap and been the jerk in the room meant that I actually ultimately ended up with far less in the game than others who had cooperated had done. And that was an interesting lesson for me. And the lesson that I learned was twofold. One is cooperation garner, earns trust. And so you get more from the other person. Like they're prepared to give you more. Right. I've cooperated. I've told you that I'm prepared to give up some of my self-interest in favor of listening to what yours is. And then we'll both have a bigger piece of the pie at the end because we cooperated. That's part one of that lesson. Part two of that lesson for me, leaving aside the fact, don't be a jerk. Oh, good lesson. Um, <laughs> part two of that lesson for me was try to understand what the other person wants. Right. So we spend a lot of time as, as, you know, solicitor and client, as advisor and client, talking about what's important for the other side. What's important for them? Let's put ourselves in their shoes. And that's so much, you know, you can hear your parents telling you this. You know, how do you think your friend feels? Put yourself in their put shoes. Put yourself in their shoes. Well, by golly, you know, everything I learned, I learned in kindergarten is actually pretty true. Mm -hmm. And so we spend a lot of time thinking about, you know, what's important to them? Does it matter to us? Well, if it doesn't matter to us, you can have it. It's okay. 
but I need to hear and I need an open communication from the other side, quote unquote, so that I know what's important to you. And I will in turn tell you what really matters to me and I'll tell you why. If I tell you to do, if I tell my son to do something, go make your bed. He's like, why? I'm just going to get in and, and, you know, mess it up again. I said, because my poor son, if he's listening to this, it'll be, he'll be so annoyed. Um, because there are studies that say if you actually just make your bed and come back to a, come back at night to a, you know, a bed that's made, it actually has a nice knock-on effect to other things in your life. Very much so. I think it was Admiral McRaven who wrote the book, Make Your Bed. Exactly. Mm -hmm. So, you know, like it's those small things, but you've got to explain. It's not just, I want this. It's why do I want this? And the minute I've told you why, I've opened myself up to a conversation. I've invited you to open yourself up to my conversation. And all of a sudden, our negotiation becomes a conversation, not an adversarial negotiation. And we all get more and we're happier with the transaction. So those are the conversations that we have as client and advisor and with the other side. And ultimately, I don't like to say it's the other side. I like to say we negotiate as a team and it's right. a broader team. Right. I've always said, let's not negotiate across the table. Let's right. negotiate side by side. Right. Or around the table. Exactly right. Exactly right. right. Does it always go so well? No, for sure. There's like, you know, there's the outliers of people who have their own agendas or whatever the answer is. Like right. for sure. I can't control other people's behavior. I've painfully discovered that with my child. I wish I could control behavior, but regrettably I can't. So you kind of have to let it go and you need to meet people wherever they are. So talk about letting it go. Cause that's something that people have a hard time doing sometimes. Well, I'm sort of lucky. Like I'm just the advisor. What I love about my job, what I love about my job, many things I love about my job besides my clients is I can tell you what I think, but you don't have to take my advice. I love that. Over to you, your decision. I can tell you what decision I might make if I were in your shoes. I think that's helpful. But ultimately, it is your decision. And I'm just going to tell you the risks. We're all going to talk about risks. We're all going to talk about benefits. And then usually it's pretty obvious what the decision should be. But occasionally, you've got those difficult ones. If there are difficult characters across the table, and I will use the words across the table in this context, that is their journey. And again, it's up to us to understand their journey. And a really strong negotiation, a really strong conversation is, okay, I know clearly there's a journey that you're on and we need to meet you partway through that journey. And so if I think something doesn't make any sense, I'll say, I'm not sure that makes sense or I don't understand it. But I'm, you're always asking for them to give you a little bit more information so you understand. Right. And sometimes when, you, when you're dealing with difficult folks, they'll say, here's our thinking around this. How do you react to that? And again, sometimes people are just on their journey and it's okay because it's not my journey. I don't need to take your journey on too. I got my own journeys. I'm just going to pause there, yeah. folks, because that is just such a nugget of gold that you just said. We're each on our own journeys, including the people you come across in life. They are on their own journeys. Sometimes our journeys intersect for a brief period of time and we realize that we're not meant to continue on our journeys together and being able to let go of that and to acknowledge and respect the journey that someone else is on, but that you are staying focused on your journey and who are the allies in that journey with you and to build those relationships. That's a good thing. You know, I, I, um, I once gave a sermon in church on this. Uh, my father suffered from mental illness, partly because he was in world war two. 
because there's a lot of PT, I'm sure he had P, uh, undiagnosed PTSD. And so he would be very, he would be angry for no particular reason. And one of the things that I preached on in church was simply put, you, we have to be kind to everyone because I don't know what battle you're fighting. And you may be fighting another battle that I know nothing about. And what's interesting is sometimes you think, well, you're, you're giving me something and it must be somehow me. And a lot of the time, I'm always surprised to find that, in fact, it had nothing to do with me at all. They had some other battle that they were fighting in the background. And so that's been a bit of a revelation for me, too. Shockingly, for an opera singer, it's not all about me. It's actually about you and your journey. And I can only look at you with compassion and say, mm. you must be fighting a battle that I don't know about. But there's a business deal to be done here. So let's focus on that business deal. And let's focus on that. Whatever journey you're on, I need to respect it because it's your journey. Right. But there are there's something that we need to both look at together to get a deal done. Yeah. And I love what you said about bringing your heart to that adversarial relationship, assuming it is one. Yeah. Right. For because sure. we don't know what's going on in other right. people's lives. Right. Right. Absolutely. So that's what we do. So those are no interesting negotiations. And and recently I came across a fellow named Chris Ross. So he was a former lead negotiator for the FBI, international oh, negotiator for the FBI. Yep. So high stakes negotiation. This is where U.S. citizens have been taken hostage somewhere else in the world. Right. And he talks about going to the Harvard Business School and doing their negotiation course because at yep. some point the FBI said, hey, we got to change the way we're doing things. But it was interesting because in a high stakes negotiation, he actually came up with some practical tactics on what to do in that scenario where it's the scenarios are, you, we have to get that hostage out alive. Mm -hmm. And often they were constrained in that the U.S. government wouldn't offer millions of dollars right. to pay. And so they had these really tight constraints. Right. Very interestingly, he talks about getting to know. Oh, interesting. As a way to unblock the conversation. What he would say is, I'll try to think of an example here, but he would say, would it be completely ridiculous to ask you to do X, Y, and Z? Because people are so keen that when you're asking them mm. to do something, when you're trying to get them to get to yes, Right. That you're setting them up for something, that there's right. some ulterior motive and that people's defenses actually are more relaxed when they're able to say no under those high pressure situations. Well, that's super interesting. I, you know what I don't, I, I think that's actually interesting. As you were saying that what resonated for me was obviously the getting to know, but it was also what he's doing is he's reframing. We sometimes are on a path and we're like, you know, I need you to buy 500 widgets. I need you to buy 500 widgets. So I'm just going to keep saying, I need you to buy 500 widgets. But what he's really doing is he's saying, hold on. Like, we all know I need you to buy 500 widgets. I think we've got that. But you're telling me something and you're not, you're not giving me the information I need to understand why buying 500 widgets is an issue for you. So what he's doing is he's reframing the conversation. And I like the way he's reframing it to know, but he's saying, okay, we want you to buy 500 widgets. Let's put it over there. And I don't want to in any way suggest that widgets are somehow equivalent to hostage negotiations. <laughs> Let me be clear about that. That is a very different conversation. But, but what he's doing is he's doing a reframing. He's saying, okay, let's move that to the side. Let's talk about something else for a minute. And if we talk about something else, let's focus on something else that, that maybe doesn't matter so much to me, but matters a lot to you. So what he's really doing is he's asking, right. what matters to you? Or 
okay, is it hard to do X, Y, and Z? Because we all know I need you to do, to buy 500 widgets. And I, again, I'm not a hostage negotiator. <laughs> that man is a hero and I am not. But it's this, it's, it's a similar conversation. It's just right. not as high stakes, not life and death. Um, so let's reframe it. Okay. What is it that you need? What would, what would make it easier for you to do that? So and again, so, building that trust we, right. so it's, that there's a sharing of information, right. putting ourselves in their shoes. Right. I want to understand what's important right. to you. There was one example he gave, which I thought was just so incredibly interesting. So again, hostage negotiation yeah. with, um, with a group that was known to kill their hostages. And at one point, he was advising the local negotiator, and he got them to say to the actual um, hostage taker, um, you're upset because of 500 years of, of abuse. You're upset mm -hmm. because your people haven't been seen. Really re-articulating what he understood was the underlying right. pain point and why this organization actually came into being. And when he did that, and he did it so thoroughly and with compassion to their perspective on their reality, the hostage was let go. Right. He just walked away. Right. And it was really incredible. Well, it's like namaste. Namaste means I acknowledge the God within you. All people want to be is heard and acknowledged mm -hmm. ultimately. Mm -hmm. And so what he is doing on a much more profound level than I could ever do is he's acknowledging the humanity across from him. I was him. just going to say that. And I'm just, so I salute the God in you. Right. I salute who you are. And that can be as simple as, I need you to buy my 500 widgets, not so much. Or it can be as profound as, I hear you. Mm -hmm. And that's what my mentor said when I went in with my heart beating. Mm. That's what my mentors have said in other contexts. That's what the other side in negotiations wants to hear. I hear you. Have you been heard? Sometimes the best thing anyone can do in a negotiation or in anything is just stop talking and just listen to what the other person has to say. It is the humanity in each of us. Mm -hmm. And we can acknowledge that. We can hear it. We may not see eye to eye. Yep. But we can still give space for that person right. to feel value and worth. And heard. And heard. Vanessa, I wanted to ask you, when you think back on your journey and we think about what I'll call the heroes on your sidelines, the people who you have had the opportunity to intersect with in your life. And these can be people you may have had a long relationship. They may have just been transient in your life, come in and then come out. You may have felt a very deep relationship or it may have been just a touch point. They may be virtual people, or they may be people that you've held space with. Um, they may be positive, they may be negative relationships that you've had. Like when I say negative, I mean ones where the friction came, right? When you think back on your life, can you think of a few people who were heroes, who because of that interaction, interaction changed either the way you saw the world, the way you saw yourself, and changed the trajectory of your journey? Gosh, that's a hard one. But, you know, it really is those role models um, in the early parts of my career. And I've had a number of them. So I had a, a business uh, before I went into law 
Uh, clearly not that successful because I'm a lawyer, uh, but uh, she's still a dear friend today. She and I went into business together and I learned from her that it's okay to ask any question. You can always ask a question and it's not a weakness to say, I don't know. And it's amazing to me how many doors open when you say, I don't know, can you help me understand? That was, so she taught me the courage of saying, I don't know. And I really, really admired her for that because I was terrified to say that. I was like, oh my gosh, I can't say that soon before I'm a lawyer. And now I'm like, it's fine to say, I don't know, because that opens a door. So that, that was certainly one of the most wonderful lessons I learned from her. The other lesson I learned, I've already described one of the stories, but a different story again is um, one of my, he was a mentor, like a, in the formal sense, but he was also a friend and a role model. Um, he, his approach to things were, it's all going to be fine. It's okay. And he taught me that there's always a solution. I may not like the solution. It may take me a while to get through the solution emotionally or otherwise, mm -hmm. but there's always a solution and it's okay. And treating people with compassion in the workplace was the best lesson he taught me. Mm -hmm. It's going to be okay. That was really profound for me. And that was the environment in which I worked at that firm. And, and frankly, I'll be honest, in subsequent law firms, it's been a joy uh, to work with my legal colleagues that way. But, but those were the two men who first taught me that it was okay. The last one, and, and I hate to say that they're, they were men, but that was just sort of the way it was at the time, uh, was another man uh, who I did some work for him. He was on vacation. I didn't know if I'd done a good, bad, or terrible job. And he taught me the value of saying thank you. I went back to law school. I thought, my God, he never talked to me again. Maybe he thought the work I did was terrible. This was a, one of my summer law jobs. And about a month later at law school, he sent me a handwritten note saying, I'm so sorry I couldn't get back to you. The work you did was really great. I just wanted mm -hmm. to write you a note and say thank you. So he taught me the value of saying thank you. And from a person who was in a position of power to me, that was profound. It was profound that he had taken the time to write a note to a law student who had done some little bit of work for him, uh, good, bad, or indifferent, but to say thank you. So he taught me the value of treating people, no matter what level they're at, mm -hmm. with respect and gratitude. Mm -hmm. um, so compassion, the power to, it's very powerful to say, I don't know, and to admit that you don't know something, and the power of saying thank you and creating relationships at all levels of an organization and a relationship of gratitude uh, was were the three biggest lessons I learned through my professional journey for sure. Right. And it's amazing that when you have those opportunities to learn from such beautiful role models mm -hmm. and you take that and you carry it through as you become the hero to the people around you. I can only hope, but that's a different conversation. <laughs> I, I, have, I have no doubt. I have no doubt. Even just joining me today on this podcast and sharing your wisdom, sharing your beauty, sharing your experiences, I have no doubt will help many people who are listening to this. And um, before we close, is there anything else you'd want to add that we haven't covered? I, you know, I thought that we would be um, exploring more your your time as an opera singer. Oh. But honestly, it was just so fascinating to hear your um, experiences building relationships 
as a lawyer. Um, but maybe I could just end on a fun note because I can't, <laughs> I can't end this podcast without talking about your opera singing. So of all the characters you've played, which ones have you loved playing? And have you ever played a character where you thought, this is just not me, or is that just part of being the singer? Uh, that's an interesting, that's, a, that's definitely another interesting conversation. Um, because I'm a mezzo-soprano, you either get to play a nun or a prostitute, and that's kind of where you end up. <laughs> or the maid. Like, so those are pretty much your three roles uh, in right. opera, for sure. But, um, or, uh, sorry, then the last one is you have a pants role, so you're so a So do I, do I ask which, which, okay, so nun, prostitute, maid, maid or, or man. nun, or a man? Yeah. Those are your choices. Right. No, it's a so, pretty limited so thing. Which, which ones? Do you know what I love? <laughs> I love that. Well, it depends on your personality. But what I have loved about opera is the same sort of um, relationships. Now, opera relationships are more transitory. So you do a show and then you don't see someone until, you know, you happen to be cast with them five years later in some other show. They're not, uh, they're not sort of day-to-day relationships the way they are in law, which is interesting. Mm-hmm. Um, so opera, again... Uh, you're all there to do a job and you're all there to have fun. What I've enjoyed about the roles that I've had the, the joy of playing is that they've all been very different and I've been asked to bring different parts of myself. And that's actually uh, acting and uh, improv in particular are actually really, really helpful uh, tools in the working world because what they do is they, again, help you inhabit someone else's world. I certainly do not have prostitution in my background, just so we're all clear. Um, But I have to do the research and I have to understand what that world was. And I have to put myself in that character's shoes. So it actually teaches you compassion as well. Mm. And so if I have to put myself in the shoes of someone very, very different from me, that's not so different. And those skills are 100% transferable to a conversation and negotiation in, you know, buying the darned widgets. I have to put myself in someone's shoes who has a very different lens on life than I do. So opera has actually been phenomenal for me in that respect um, because I've had to inhabit it. But, but the one, the roles that I love are where uh, you've got characters that have, that are very well rounded and you're asked to bring all kinds of different parts of yourself to them. So the nuns I've loved, the maids I've loved, the prostitutes I've loved, the men I'm not physically kind of set up to be a man. <laughs> so those have been a little harder for me, um, but they've all been wonderful in their own res- in their own respects. And again, they've given me some clearly transferable skills into my into what my fabulous life is now. Right, brilliant. This this has been such a fabulous conversation. I just want to, um, I'd like to just thank you from the bottom oh, of my heart. I'm thanking you. For, for this time, how the world views the law, to what it really is, to relationships that are long and enduring, to nuggets of gold that people have given you, all the way through to how you've been able to take what you've learned in opera and bring it to your day-to-day profession. And let's also not forget Um, your role as a mother to your son and how all these different roles that we wear, um, different hats we wear, we put different ones on and off, but through and through being authentic. And this is one of the Mm -hmm. things I've heard in today's conversation, really being authentic through the different roles that we play to our values. That if we use our values as a rudder in life, no matter Mm -hmm. who's on the other side of the table, 
what shoes we're putting ourselves into, we're able to find, as one of your mentors say, a way to solve all problems. Mm -hmm. And so with that, thank you all for listening to this podcast. Please do see the show notes down below where we're going to provide some valuable and exciting links. And again, if you have any questions or if you have suggestions on topics or people you would like us to interview on the show, please give a shout out. We'd love to hear from you. 